Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Mi gente, I have some exciting news to share with you. The Wine and Chisme podcast is hosting our first virtual wine tasting. And it's not just any virtual wine tasting. We are partnering with the Mexican American Vintners Association, also known as MAVA, to bring wines from four of their members right to your door. Like many businesses across the country, COVID has taken its toll on small wineries. Unlike many others, businesses on the West Coast have also had to deal with wildfires. These wineries in particular have had to deal with two back-to-back wildfires. So let's use this opportunity to support these Latino winemakers and small businesses. Here's how it works. We will highlight one Latino winemaker each Wednesday beginning November 4th through November 25th. You can choose to purchase all four bottles ahead of time, purchase wines individually, or if you don't want the wine, but you want the wine education, you can do that as well. Those who choose the wine will receive the bottles of wine they selected, whether individually or all four together, access to the Zoom link to participate in our Vintner conversation, 15% off a future purchase of wine, and free shipping. Yes. There's a link to more information and to purchase tickets on our website, thewineandchismepodcast.com. Just click on events and it'll take you where you need to go. I am so excited about this opportunity and hope that you are too. I really hope to see some of the Wine and Chisme faces on there. Hola mi gente, welcome to another episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast a podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things, all while sipping on a glass of wine. I'm your host, Jessica Yanez. I am really excited about this week's episode. My guest is my friend, Francesca Martinez. I met Francesca years ago, and she's currently a National Health Equity Program Manager in the Office of Health Equity at a large national nonprofit. As part of a focused team leading the organizational strategy on health equity and addressing social determinants of health, Francesca ensures integration and collaboration internally and externally, building solutions to address root causes and systematic issues contributing to health disparities. Francesca is also a former staunch conservative and recovering Trump supporter. We discuss her seventh generation Texas roots, how religion influenced her life, and how she went from voting Republican for 12 years, yes, including Trump, to a progressive who believes in using her voice for social equity and justice. So grab your glass of wine and join us for the chisme. Like, 
Yeah. I'm so glad we're finally doing this. I know. I know. I'm a little nervous. I'm like, oh, okay. I mean, it's, I don't know. It's just kind of, I'm used to talking about other things. I don't think I'm used to talking about myself um, or whatever, whatever right. around, you know, and, and I was making a couple of notes and like, um, listening to other podcasts and I was like, okay, you know, but I'm glad. Thank you so much for the invitation. Oh my gosh. So no, I have wanted you on for years, actually before, like when I initially wrote like who I wanted on, uh-huh. you were one of the first people because we've known each other for a long time. We've known yeah. like, okay, when did I, when I was at Aldia, I think that was 20, 2004, maybe. I think so. Or was it five, yeah. something like that. So we've yeah. known each other a good 14, 15 years. Yeah. And we, it started off as like a professional relationship and friends. And then we've just grown and we went to the same church together and everything. But when I started seeing your point of view changing so much over the last several years, I knew when I started the podcast, I wanted you on. So before we get into all that chisme, okay, I, I, you know, I go over the wine and I am drinking, I don't know if you're drinking wine with me today, but I am drinking an Aloro vineyard. It's a vineyard out of Oregon, uh-huh. um, just outside Portland, Oregon. And dude, these w- wines are so good. So, so good. It's a 2016 Pinot Noir. And it's the, this is the tasting notes for it. it says this wine reveals intense ripe black cherries and blueberries with rose petals and notes of cinnamon, clove, and slightly toasted hickory. Very full-bodied, dark ruby in color, like you can see it's really dark, with plush velvety texture, pleasurable persistence, and mouth-watering acidity that provides tension. This wine has a very long finish that lingers with ripe black cherries, baking spices, and graphite. So it is really, really good. Are you drinking with me today? I am not. No, because I'm not, I'm, you know, and I've tried. Um, I even had a wine subscription, like, you know, for a while. And then it just kind of all piled up. I am drinking my um, hibiscus tea. That's me. I have, let's see how many drink. I mean, I have my water. Um, and then I have some BCAAs. So I've got like three. I it's like in my desk. And I have water here. So, but I do yeah. have, of course. I, I, I try to see how many glasses I can have on my little shelf here. Girl, I'm telling you right now with my like desk being my all, where my table, it's not even my table has mm-hmm. become my desk where I do the podcast where I do, and it's just become a catch all. And I was, I walked in today and I was like, this looks so terrible. I so, I need to really clean this off. I need to do, I need to, you know, it's, it's so bad, but whatever. I knew I was going to, I was like, yeah, I need, I know I'm going to need a glass of wine. Well, as if I need an excuse for a glass of wine, (laughs) (laughs) but yes, I'm super excited. Like I said, we're going to just, we're just going to dive right into everything and let's get started. (laughs) <laughs> you so, are a Tejana, or in your words, a Texican, seven, <laughs> yes. seven generations, actually. So what does that mean to you in regards to how you grew up seeing the world? I recently just started saying that, probably not even in the last, I would say last year, in, in the last year, maybe even 18 months, 
Um, I grew up always saying I was Hispanic. You know, I always knew my family was from Texas. I was a Texas born and bred, you know, native Texan. I always, and I still have a little bit of that pride. Um, but I think as I've been on this journey and really, really dived, you know, was really diving into more of, you know, who I am and what does the culture mean and, and, and more of that pride, right? And, and, um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about, you know, as I say, wiping off that white gaze that had been on me for so many years. I realized that, first of all, um, the history that many people don't know, right, of Texas being, yeah. you know, a country in and of itself before it became part of the United States. But then also, I always remember my grand, my great grandmother always saying that, you know, her great grandparents lived in the same area, which is the North Texas, Dallas area, you know, she was always, she always had that pride about growing up in Texas and her family growing up in Texas. And so knowing that, and so it's, it's, it's this reminder to those who constantly ask, you know, where your parents are from, or did you grow up here? You know, that no, actually my family is here, you know, seventh generation. But I do remember I was walking through an airport and I saw an advertisement. I think it was like for an investment banker, insurance. I don't know. Uh, a man, gray hair. I think it's black and white, but I'm going to assume that he was not a person of color. And he said, you know, fifth generation Texan, someone you can trust. And I remember seeing that and I was like, what? And I was like, here's this man who we know did not grow up here. Or maybe he did. I don't know. But even if him, he's being so prideful about being fifth generation Texan, I'm like, but I'm seventh generation Texan, right? And there are seventh generation Californians and um, those from New Mexico, any from the Southwest, right? Yeah. There are 35th generation indigenous communities, right? To imagine that 35th generation, why are we not reminding people that we, we're here, right? We've been here. This was our country before it became the United States. And so, yeah, so that is, um, but I, I am a Dallas girl, you know, um, and I learned a lot more about what that meant when I went to college and the difference between North Texas and the rest of Texas. But yeah, so I, I am a seventh generation Texan, again, to remind people that we didn't start being here when you found us, right? Yeah. Or when um, you decided that we were American or Texan. Oh, I like that because, well, I will say, I mean, living in Dallas for 15 years, I would, I always joke that there's, when babies are born in Texas, they're taken through like baby boot camp. They put something to your brain because there is no, I mean, and I am proud girl, you know, I would always, when people would ask if I was from Texas, I'm like, uh -uh, I'm from San, I'm from California. I'm from San Diego. Like I would quick quick yes. with it and even after I was there 10 years people were like well you've been here 10 years that means you're a Texan I'm like that does not mean I'm a Texan that means that I've lived in Texas for 10 years <laughs> yes it is yeah you get I know here in Dallas like your first baby onesie is a Dallas cowboy you know something you've got to have something onesie good thing I didn't I have kids there because that would have not been the case I would have been like, sorry no <laughs> Give me the chargers, right? <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I remember I think everyone I know who grew up in in Dallas especially has a picture of themselves in a, you know, a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader uniform, Halloween costume, or I've got pictures floating around when I was like five or six and I would not take off my white boots. Um, I wore them with everything. 
uh, everything. And my mom is like, okay, we'll just make it work, you know, in my Dallas Cowboy cheerleader jacket. So yeah, I'm a Dallas girl, Texan, and I love it, you know, uh, but, and, and especially now where there's so much, you know, it's a larger influx of individuals from other states that are coming so to much. Dallas. Oh my gosh. Yes. Like you wouldn't even recognize Oak Cliff right now. Uh, you know, it makes me sad um, a little bit to see like all of the gentrification that's happening. Um, I remember when it was happening and I'm sure it's even, I mean, I haven't been back. It's been about a year and a half since I've been back, but I can only it imagine it's gotten every corner of, of Bishop and in like the, the inner, the major intersection is all new build, right? Everything. And just to see that. And I remember when I was here, when I moved to Oak Cliff, um, in 2003. So I, I would say that I'm, I'm from Oak Cliff. It's funny. I didn't grow up in Oak Cliff, but I moved here as fast as I could after I graduated college. Um, it's a funny story about in college when someone said I was from Oak Cliff. I remember because how I grew up of like uh, being different, right? Being, you know, there's this, and I think especially for like a journey when you're Hispanic and living in both worlds, right? This the famous Selena quote of, you know, we're not Mexican enough, but we're not American enough, right? right? And you live that every day. And no one really pointed out to me like you're Mexican or you're Hispanic, but I always knew that in the back of my mind. And I remember in college, uh, you know, someone came up to me and is like, oh, and you're like, where are you from? And everyone's because everyone is from, from different parts of, of the country. And I said, oh, I'm from Dallas. And he said, oh, you're from Oak Cliff. And I was like, no, I'm not from Oak Cliff. And I don't know why, but I think back now and kind of how I was programmed and that good Hispanics didn't live in Oak Cliff like good Hispanics lived in the suburbs, right? Or you were different. You were a different Hispanic, which is part of kind of that assimilation, right? That was programmed into our mind that you're a good Hispanic or you're a good Mexican or you're good, whatever, you know, whatever your culture is that, you know, that's, that's that assimilation. Um, but yeah, it was, it was interesting, but I've been here now since 2003 and I've seen the whole neighborhood change. I would say that being here in Oak Cliff has helped me also appreciate my culture, see the systems and structures of our city, you know, play out, the inequities play out, and and still. Um, so this is part of, of who I am now, living in Oak Cliff. And, and it used to be, oh, you live in Oak Cliff, and it'd get that, like, ooh, scared look. Now it's, it's like, oh my gosh, I love Oak Cliff. I want to live there. You know, everyone wants to come and live in Oak Cliff, uh, but only certain parts of it. Oh right? yeah, 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 because only certain some streets. There's some streets that have, you know, they've been gentrified, and and we know people that we went to church with that all of a sudden they're like, oh, we live in Oak Cliff, and I'm thinking, what the heck? Like. <laughs> Well, that's odd, but okay. <laughs> yes, yes. It was a new thing to do. You know, it was a sign of, oh, I, I'm, it was the old, you know, I'm, I'm woke when people didn't even realize that that's what it was. Um, it was kind of the, you know, I'm of the people or I get it or whatever. All of those people have since moved back to the suburbs, by the way. Um, FYI. Oh, yeah. I've um, seen things on Facebook. They've been sold So there's an area in San Diego called Barrio Logan that's very similar to that and it's being like there's a a strip and there's Chicano Park is under is in that area and there's like a whole this street where they're like people are just trying to hold on 
for dear life to make sure that this is not gentrified. And with COVID, the things that have been happening and people not being able to pay rent or closing or things like that, I feel like we're going to go through a hentified situation. <laughs> um, if you haven't watched hentified, please watch it on Netflix because it's very, but you know, there is a mid rise apartment building. There is like, it's starting to get gentrified and it makes me so sad because I saw it. There's a brewery over there. So, you know, once a brewery moves in, the hipsters are not far behind, right? Mm -mm. The gentrification no. is right around the corner. And San Diego is already not a cheap place to live. California as a whole. I love San Diego. I love uh, perfect weather. I think everyone says that about California, right? You guys have the perfect weather and you're like hot as like today we're, you know, in the eighties and I'm sure that's sweltering for you guys. Um, okay. I've become a total wimp again. Like it, I mean, when I first moved back from Dallas, I was like, Psh, whatever, people don't know what hot is. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm such a wimp. It's 80 degrees. Let me close everything up and turn on the AC. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. But we yeah. have been getting some heat. It's gotten like 90 degrees and that's I mean, really hot for us. That's, and that's super hot. And I live like within walking distance of the waterfront. So that's super hot. So when it gets inland, it's really, really hot. But the difference is, I know you're going to, you know, and I was, it's the, the humidity, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. You don't have, you don't have that humidity here. Like you do in Dallas where you feel like you can't breathe or it's, it's yeah. just hot. Just hot. Yeah. <laughs> the best hair days in California. I always say the best hair days because there's like heat, but there's like no humidity. Since um, I've been back, I don't even straighten my hair. I hardly straighten my hair anymore. Wow. That, and your your journey of like curly hair has been amazing as well. Like you always had amazing hair. You always had great curly hair and and loved it. But even and I think even talking about, you know, where even our culture has gone of like embracing curls. Right. And embracing because we've just so internalized again, me with my platinum blonde hair. I know internalized, <laughs> you know, those white beauty standards of straight hair and Okay, so I'm going to tell you a story. Only my family knows this. I was bald when I was, you know, a baby. I didn't have hair until like, you know, maybe I think even two almost. Um, and I always wanted long hair. But my mom grew up with long hair. She was known for her long hair all through high school. She had it down, you know, past her her, her butt. And, and she was just like, she always had this long, luxurious hair. And she didn't like it. So the first chance she got, she cut it off. So she always vowed that if she had a child, a little girl, she would never let her have long hair. Like she always wanted my hair short. So I always had, if anyone remembers, you know, Dorothy Hamill, which is like a little, oh, the bowl cut. you know, the bowl cut. Um, but I wanted long hair because all of my cousins had long hair and my aunts would put them in these, you know, immaculate braids and like they had ribbons in their hair and I maybe had a clip. That's it. So <laughs> I would wear a brown towel on my head um, and go around because that was my hair. And then my grandmother, <laughs> who I love my grandmother, uh, my grandmother, and my aunt were the only ones who let me kind of go outside of the house. I could only wear it like in the house. You know, they got me a headband so I could keep it on. But yeah, like I always wanted long, you know, dark hair and, and I never had it. And um, I even had I even found like this long 
long wig um, and I would hide it and I would take it to school and put it on. (laughs) I got sent home because I just wanted this long hair, um, whether it was wavy, curly, anything. Uh, But as you can see, like my hair is very short now and love it short. Um, But like the journey of curls and like embracing, you know, what you have is so important now. And yeah. I love, I love like the different products and like everything. So if people realizing they have curly hair, you just thought you always had wavy hair, but now you have curly hair because, Hey, you know, you were just straightening it your whole life. Um, but I, I, yes, because I hated my hair growing up. I absolutely hated my hair growing up because it was curly and my, my mom didn't have curly hair. So she didn't know what to do with my hair. And I wanted it straight so bad because everybody, I was like, Me and my friend Christina, who I'm still friends with to this day, who I've known since third grade, Mm -hmm. we were the only like we were the only ones that had curly hair. Mm -hmm. Everyone else had straight hair, and so I would do everything in to try and have it straight. But it would never be straight for more than like a week or two. Whatever product we used, and we didn't grow up learning about our hair, and we didn't. There wasn't product for curly hair. There wasn't any of this stuff. So now that you have all of these these products, like I have been very vocal on social media. I've used Rizos Curls. They're a Latino-owned brand. They're made in LA. It's a family-owned company who, you know, is now sold out of Target stores. Like, girl is freaking just working it, right? But it took a minute because I was, when I was in Dallas, I would straighten my hair a lot because of the humidity. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, gonna be big it might as well be big well you know it's it's it looks better big straight than it does big curly because it would frizz so when I moved back to California I started using another curly brand and then I just literally I just saw Riso's curls on social media and so I just wanted to try it because it was Latina owned like I was like oh well whatever I didn't have like a major problem with the other brand but it literally took, I mean, if you look at my pictures from my curly, when I had curly hair and even in Dallas versus mm-hmm. now, man, the definition of the curl is like, I have a picture from when I'm like, my hair is actually like super kinky, like not, not semi kinky, but super curly, like coils. Mm-hmm. But from straightening out all the time, like it became looser and looser and looser. So now I'm working to get that back and it's in the best shape of life that it's ever been. And so I I was that kid who absolutely hated my hair for the texture that it was. I I became okay in high school, like it was okay, but when I moved to Dallas, I started straightening it a lot again, and a lot of it had to do with the weather, but then a lot of it also I think it was just tame. You know I'm not tame. So the ha- like straight hair does it like it's a, it's it's like a wig for me, right? Mm-hmm. I want to change mm-hmm. up my look for a minute, but we both know you would never use the word tame to describe me. So why would I do that? Why am I going to do that to my hair? <laughs> yeah, but it, it's also how people, you know, depict because you think of like movies and the beauty standards, right? That we're we're shown as we're growing up, right? And and you always saw people with straight hair, right? The the um troublemaker had curly hair or dark hair right um look uh, at ugly betty exactly 
right? When she straightened her hair and her glasses came off, it was like, oh, she's beautiful, right? (laughs) Which uh, America Pereira is is amazing. And I I remember her first movie, Real Women Have Curves. Uh, That was an amazing movie, right? And she totally just broke onto the scene as this new standard of beauty. But even, you know, as she became even more popular, you know, yeah, Ugly Betty. And then you always think about, you know, blondes versus brunettes, right? That, that, kind of age old who has more fun or who's smarter or who um yeah the the certain traits and characteristics that are put on people but uh it's I think as we mature we become a lot more of you know ourselves and again I say this knowing my hair is short um (laughs) and it is what it is but you know like I said you know that's still a little bit of that Texan in me um of like you got to have the hair done right you got to have the hair done earrings on and the the lipstick the bigger the hair the closer to God I mean, yeah, like my mom, she's five foot one, but when she gets done with her hair, she's five, four, like the woman loves big hair. So yeah, I know, I've seen it. <laughs> yeah. You've seen my mom, Sarah, and she's, she's amazing. Uh, but yeah, she will always say, uh, she loves hair. Yeah. The higher the hair, the closer to God. So, well, speaking of family, did you grow up because being seventh generation Texan in Texas, normally when people think of Texans, they think of, and it's so funny, people, if you've never been to Texas, you think of like cowboys and stuff. And Dallas is not like that. Fort Worth is more like what people in their mind think of Texas is more like Fort Worth versus Mm -hmm. Dallas. Dallas is very like, I guess, cosmopolitan city. Was your family really conservative growing up? Because I feel like that's something else that people associate with Texas. They do. Yeah, they, I think they do um, with Texas. Yeah, you, you know, I think sometimes it's also like maybe I, I don't want to say country like, but like, you know, the South. Right. Um, and there's always a debate. Is Texas and Oklahoma really part of the South? Yeah. Or is it the Southwest? You know, um, but I know that Texas, we're like, we're not part of the South. We're our own thing. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, my family, I think it also has to go back to, I think, um, you know, religion, because did grow up Catholic, you know, and there is a little bit of that um, with the culture of being Hispanic and then Catholic. There's a little bit of that conservatism uh, or being conservative. But I wouldn't say in, in what it's defined now, right, of what is a conservative. Um, but I think it would be more of, you know, honor and respect and and not saying that other people do not have that outside of Texas. But like, but, you know, I don't know any different, right? Because I've never lived anywhere else. I've never lived on either one of the coasts. I mean, I visited, I lived in, well, actually I did live in California for a little while. Um, but you always thought, oh, the liberal California or the liberal New York. I don't know. I think we have our own little brand of of maybe Texas. Our Texas pride lends itself to a little bit of brand of we want to be our own, but then we want to have rules. We want you to follow the rules. Like we don't want you to be too out there. You know, in the fact that Austin is the most liberal part of Texas. Yeah. Right? Keep Austin and weird. Keep Austin weird, right? And and I went to school in Austin and I remember, and it's so funny because yeah, you go to Austin and, and I sat I was a lot more like laid back and like my first year of college, I wore nothing but t-shirts and jogging pants and like hats and like my hair was a lot more curly and natural, wavy there. Um, you just kind of yeah, so so it was a lot more lackadaisical, whereas Whereas I think here, yeah, in Dallas, Houston um, are a lot more metropolitan, you know, and you got to look your best and you got to, you know, show what you have or don't have. But yeah, 
And, but my, I would say my family was a conservative in that they were Catholic, right? Conservative, whatever that means. But we had it, we had a, I grew up in a matriarchy, which was like, my mom is one of, of uh, six girls, two boys, uh, my grandmother, my great grandmother, my great grandmother, my grandmother was one, the only girl out of uh, six. So she had five other brothers. So she was the only woman. And so uh, growing up and, and my great great grandmother kind of really uh, led our family in that. But I, I would say, so conservative, I'm not sure, you know, but I, I would say that, yeah, compared to Austin, like I said, which is the liberal part of Texas. Um, yeah. and, and then don't even go West Texas, because that's a whole other set of really ideals. Is. And again, like, good old boy, you know, and it's just, that is a whole other set of, of, of things. And, and even going to school in Austin and meeting people from all over all different parts of Texas, you know, how Dallas and, and you're Hispanic in Dallas, how that's perceived as being Hispanic from Houston or, or San Antonio, or so please, um, for, for, you know, you or anyone who listens to this, like, until I went to college, I had no idea that the Valley of Texas existed. I thought the Valley, when you talked about the Valley was California, like your Valley, right? Yeah. That you guys call the Valley, but it wasn't and, until like, the Rio Grande Valley. Which yes. The Valley like, in I, Texas. I had no idea. I, know, no, I knew that because my dad is actually from Brownsville. He's from the Valley. Yeah. So I would never. I that. did know that, and I would before I even moved to Texas. <laughs> before you moved to Texas, right? You knew that before I did because you didn't go south of San Antonio. Really, you didn't. You didn't go west of Weatherford, right? Uh, or my family didn't. Um, but yeah, I didn't know what the valley was until the Rio Grande Valley, which until I went to to uh, college, and that was also an eye opening experience because, like I said, what it meant to be Hispanic. And from Dallas, as opposed to from the Rio Grande Valley or from West Texas or San so Antonio. What was, or the Austin. Perceived, what was that perceived difference? Or, you know, how did other people perceive you versus somebody from Houston or the Valley or or San Antonio? So basically, I was told that I was too white, um, you know, that that age old, you know, you're a coconut right? You're brown on the outside and white on the inside. My Spanish wasn't good enough. You know, I was too white, you know, I, and it was explained to me, like, the further you get from the border from Mexico, the more white or assimilated you are. And I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't say that I wasn't because if I, I looked back on me growing up, my grandmother, my great grandmother, we were never, we never labeled ourselves Mexican American. We only labeled ourselves Hispanic we did not grow up speaking Spanish at all. You know, a lot has come to light, I think, recently about, you know, for when my mother, which my mother is 64, when my mother was in grade school, like you weren't allowed to speak Spanish in school. You weren't even allowed to bring food from your house, right? Everyone loves tacos and tortillas now, but they would literally throw them in the trash if you brought that to school right? There are stories of in the Rio Grande Valley of teachers having students bury their Spanish, which is... That was, that's uh, what happened with my dad. Yeah. Both you my buried, parents, they couldn't... Bury your Spanish. Mm-hmm. You couldn't... And if you spoke Spanish outside of your home, you had the possibility of getting beaten up, of being arrested, of being, you know, harassed. So for 
so that was part of our assimilation, right? Of, well, it's for a safety, right? We ha- we can't speak Spanish. So my grandmother, my great grandmother, we did not speak Spanish. Uh, we knew a couple of words. Spanish was only spoken when they were talking about the kids, right? Or they wanted to say something that they didn't want us to understand. So I learned Spanish in school and still didn't learn it too well. Um, but that was one of the things. So not speaking Spanish, that language. And for so many years, um, not knowing Spanish or not being, you know, you know, being able to be totally bilingual, um, it made me question my own Hispanicness, right? My own identity and my own culture. Now I know that language is a part of that, but there's so much more part that, you know, that makes me who I am. Um, and language connects us, yes. And I think we should celebrate that. And, you know, we should make sure that we, as, a, as a country, we don't have an official language. So if it needs to be Spanish, well then, you know, let it be Spanish. So. But yeah, so that was one of the big differences is 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 that, you know, uh, as it was explained to me, is that the further north you get, the more assimilated, the more white you become. And then a lot of Hispanics, because I went to a Catholic university, um, a lot of people went to Catholic high schools, right? Um, and I didn't. I went to a public high school. Um, so, so that was also that, hey, you went to a Catholic high school, you must be privileged, right? You must be wealthy. You must, you know, have that kind of advantage. Whereas a lot of the students from the Valley, we had an amazing program at school, which was called the um, uh, Children of Migrant Workers. So our university would give that first year to all children of migrant workers to come and experience college, first of all. And then also, I didn't know there were migrant workers. So here I am, 18 years old. I didn't know what the valley was. We're like totally opposite because my grandpa, and I've talked about this in other ones, my grandpa used to run the fields Mm -hmm. here in California, in San Diego, like the citrus fields and the avocado fields. And I was old enough to remember him being out there and watching the guys work and being like, can I take home some lemons? Yeah, I did not know that. I didn't know that. Now, later come to find out that my mom told me that when my grandmother was young, yes, they, uh, for a couple of summers, they would send them out into the fields and they would um, work. But I didn't even know that about my own grandmother. But yeah, she was, uh, our family, you know, would travel down south or to the east, east, east Texas or, or west Texas to help in the fields. So the university I went to, so a lot of children of migrant workers were there, you know, was that first year in college. And so, again, I didn't know what the Valley was. I didn't know about migrant workers. So, yeah, I'm totally oblivious in my little bubble, right? And not realizing how I didn't know. Now I'm like, how did I know those things? But I also know that my family my grandmother, my great grandmother made a decision to protect us from certain things and or to not tell us certain things because to give us, unfortunately, that advantage, right? To not speak Spanish, so we didn't have an accent. So, you know, to make sure that my mom and all her siblings, you know, lived in the suburbs so they could go to good schools, which were, you know, where we were sometimes going to be only, you know, diverse students in the school. You know, and now I realize that now I realize what that choice was probably really hard. But, you know, when you're living it and you're like, I'm not I'm not white. Right. Because my state, my last name is still Martinez. Right. I still they still get asked where I'm from. But then I'm not Hispanic because I don't know Spanish. And like, I didn't know. I don't feel like I don't know these simple things. Right. It kind of creates that tug. And, and I can't say that I'm fully reconciled with all of it. 
However, I do know, again, where I stand. And as part of my faith journey, this place that God has me in to be in and the voice that he's given me from this seventh generation Texan who, although she should have been fully assimilated and maybe even stopped identifying as Hispanic, is not. And is, as a matter of fact, um, wants to use her voice, use my voice to help those in my community and in my culture who, because of discrimination, because of, of racism, because of misogyny, had to give up who they were in their culture. So speaking of that, I, you said you were raised Catholic. And so the, where we went to church was, I guess, technically not, I guess it's technically Baptist based, but non-denominational. So how did you go from, like, what was your relationship with Catholicism growing up? How did you go from that to, for all intents and purposes, non-denominational church? And then I, and then, and well, then we'll go into that other stuff. <laughs> but how did you go from that to that? Because Catholicism is very, very strict, very, very traditional. I, you know, you're just, you know exactly what's coming every service, what to do when, and I didn't have that. I was baptized Catholic, but never went to Catholic church. So, yes. So I was baptized Catholic, did my first communion in the Catholic church. I grew up and, and like I mentioned, you know, my grandmother was the only girl um, and she had, you know, five other brothers. And so my grandmother lived very close to my great grandmother. We went to church with my great grandmother. Like we all, so we were all expected, you know, my, uh, my mom remembers going to church with my great, my, her mother and, and my great grandmother. And so we all went to CCD catechism class with, at my great grandmother's church. We all went to the same service. We all took up two pews, right? And, and I always saw church as just this thing you had to do. Like I knew I had to go to school Monday through Friday, Saturday, I could get up and watch cartoons and eat as many bowls, bowls of cereal as I needed to. And on Sunday, I knew I had to get up a little bit early and I had to put on my dress and like dress up and, and be there at church. And the other thing is that the church service was in Spanish. So again, <laughs> I knew like certain words like rise, kneel, you know, uh, peace be with you, like certain things. So even at that, I only saw, I saw it as a chore. I saw it as something that this is just another opportunity for me to sit with my cousins, right? It's another opportunity, opportunity, you know, to see my grandmother. Um, but I didn't have that connection. I, if you would have asked me anything about who Jesus was, I did know because I had to do my first communion, right? Um, to know who Jesus was, but you saw like the... Uh, you you saw the paintings and you saw, you know, Jesus crucified on the cross and, and, you know, at the altar, you knew, again, I couldn't take communion until I went to, you know, communion classes. And, and we did that up until I know I did my first communion. And then a couple of my younger cousins did, and then we just stopped going. And my mom kind of had that reckoning moment in, in herself to say, that she was just tired of going through the motion. So we didn't go to to church anymore on Sundays, not without the ire of my grandmother and my great-grandmother, who kind of gave us a little side eye, but um, my, my mother stood her ground. And so all I knew was that I was free of Sundays and I could eat more cereal on Sundays. Yeah, so I was like, I, child, sleep right? I know the mind of a child, um, you know, your own, uh, your own happiness is the only thing you like, you want. And it was my senior year. 
in high school. And my mom, uh, I grew up in Euless. Uh, so, you know, right around that area, my mom worked uh, for the American Airlines corporate. And so she had a former boss who uh, called her up and said, hey, I would love to invite you to this new church. You know, they're meeting in a school. Uh, you know, would you like to come? And my mom asked me if I wanted to come. I was like, no, thank you. Do I have to go? No, nope. because all I knew of church was it was boring. It wasn't a language I didn't understand. It, it, I saw no value to it. Um, and so my mom went to this this church that we 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 used to go to together um when it was you know just starting out many many uh, you know in the early in about 97 98 my mom went she loved it and she's like I think you should go I think you would really like it I was like "Mm, I'm about to go to college albeit I'm going to a Catholic university (laughs) um so I'm like sure and I remember walking in and again it was still being held at a high school and I remember walking in and the first thing was that like people were greeting you and saying hello and they had a smile on their face and then you had free donuts and again I was very motivated by food and sweets it kind of still am (laughs) I love sweets. Um, And I was like, okay, this is cool. And I remember sitting and I was like, wait, I'm not going to have to kneel. Like, what's going on here? And I remember the message and the music. And I was like, okay, this is really cool. And the message was about, uh, I believe, Samson. um, And I remember what the pastor was wearing. And I was like, oh, this is what Jesus is. So I would say that began my journey. Now, I wouldn't say that I completely, you know, gave my life over to Christ and or accepted Christ until my uh, sophomore year I was at at you know at college but I believed it was those seeds that were planted and as I say you know that was that holy spirit calling to me and whispering in my ear I do know that even though I didn't have church or religion in my life till college I always knew there was something else, right? I always believed in a higher being. I always believed I was here for a purpose. And I remember in, in high school, uh, when you have that high school senioritis and you're like, what am I going to do? And I know I'm going to college, but what else? I'm going to have to be an adult. And I remember this really still small voice and, and like, what am I going to major in? And what am I going to, you know, what's my life going to be? And, and do I even have a purpose? You know, am I valuable? And asking all these questions in my mind, I'm also... Enneagram five. So I think a lot in my head and the still small voice is like, I have a purpose for you. Don't even worry. And I was like, okay. And it gave me that calm. And of course I'd later come to find out, you know, that is the Holy spirit. That's, that's Jesus calling, you know, calling you to himself. And so, yes. So I went to college, gave my life to, to, I became a Christian, you would say in college. And I would say that I'm glad I went to a liberal Catholic university because that is where I really learned the difference between faith and religion. You would think, oh, you're going to a Catholic university, right? They're just going to stick Catholicism down your throat. Um, And they didn't, right? They, they, you, just a few years earlier, they had demandated, you know, all students to go to to Catholic mass. And so you could go if you wanted to, there was a church on campus, but they also had all students from various faiths who were there. And I learned again, between religion, what I'd grown up with, and also what my faith meant and started my really faith journey. And it was a really grounding place, I think, to understand and really grow my faith. And again, we had came back to 
after I graduated, came back to the North Texas area. I attended that larger, that, that church, you know, that now had become this mega church. Um, I served, I checked all the boxes, you know, I did all the things that a, a good new Christian did, you know, didn't watch rated R movies, didn't cuss, you know, threw out all my, you know, secular music, you know, did all those good things. And then I left there and I went to another little church that was starting up. And I would say that's where I really learned more about the Bible, because through that mega church, we also know that it maybe it was biblical based, but maybe there was a scripture or two, yeah. you know, during service. But it was more than Catholic, right? It was more than the Catholic church where you just read from the gospels. That's it. So all I knew of the Bible was just the gospel. And I remember when I got my first Bible, I was like, what is all this? What are all these books? So then I, I remember after I took a little break and I went to a smaller church and that's where I really learned about the Bible and like, you know, the knowledge and, and I became a little legalistic. I will be very honest. I became a little legalistic in, in that during that time, but that's been kind of my faith journey. And through that, I do remember that when my mom and I both started to attend that church, our family, even though we weren't what we say practicing Catholics, they kind of looked at us like, why are you giving up Catholicism? Because for many in our culture, in our community, Catholicism was really synonymous with being Hispanic, right? You just grew up. It was, you know, that is how South America and Central America were colonized through faith, right? And that is how um, the indigenous communities were, you know, uh, was through faith. And so faith was so synonymous with being Hispanic that you're giving up being Hispanic unless you embrace this faith. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So there was a little bit of that side eye, even though no one else in my family was really attended church or, you know, they had by then everyone had kind of stopped going to church on my, my, my aunts and my cousins. So, but it was kind of interesting. And again, when I remember walking into that big mega church, looking around the room, because, you know, if you're Hispanic or you're, you know, black, indigenous, a person of color, you always look in a room and you walk in and you see who else is like me, right? Uh, You always do that glance, that quick scan. And for years and years and years, every time I walk into that church, I would always do that scan. And maybe there were one or two, right? Um, As it started to grow, of course, it became a lot more diverse. But I remember a friend group, uh, which we were, you know, young in our 20s. I was one of maybe one or two, three Hispanics. I, mean, I look at my photos from my time when I would go to the main campus versus downtown because downtown was where all of anybody that came from a community of color, they were all basically in downtown. And the difference between pictures from campuses is white and brown, white, black and brown. Right. It's totally different. Exactly. So I, I, so I obviously totally get what you're saying. Cause I experienced the same thing. You eventually became an employee of the church. So my, and I remember when you became an employee of church and I remember when I hadn't seen you for a minute and then I saw you and I was like, Hey, where have you been? And you're, and then you're like, Oh yeah, I no longer work for the church. So <laughs> I'm kind of bookending those because I want to know, or like, were you starting to, was the veil starting to be lifted for you during that time that made you want to leave at least as an employee and maybe take a break? Was that when you took a break from it? Because I remember you leaving and I saw, you know, and I would see you. And at that point also, I would consider you like a staunch conservative. Yes. 
And we would, I mean, I knew it and we would talk a little bit, but I was like really opposite. So (laughs) I was having my issues because there were certain things where I'm like, why I constantly felt like we were passing judgment on people. I wasn't. And then I started noticing like I would stop attending certain services because of subjects that were being talked about because I didn't agree with it. Mm -hmm. And so I want to know, like, during that time, were those things that you were starting to see, like, what was beginning? Because there, you're very right. There is a very big difference between faith and religion. And I think people need to know that. Just because you don't attend church does not mean that you're, you know, and you can believe in whatever you want to believe in, whether that's God, whether that's Jesus Christ, whether that's the universe, whether that's Buddha. That is not for us. Mm-hmm. to impose our, you know, if somebody asks, I always always have the mindset, if somebody asks me, I will be more than happy to share my story, but it is not my job to impose my will or my faith onto anybody else. Mm-hmm. So I want to hear what your, what that timeline was like. It, it was a journey. So yes, I did become an employee of that church. And I remember, I think, and I think every kind of new, new Christian, especially in what I now call Western evangelicalism, you know, wants to, oh, I would love to work in a church because unfortunately the American church is like, and pastors have this, this fame and, you know, this kind of notoriety. They're there. They are in themselves, their own little idols, um, which now I, I clearly see that. So, yeah. So I think there was always like, oh, I'd love to work with the church. Right. And you always think it's going to be the best place you ever work because everyone's a Christian, right? Everyone, they're, they're great. And Christians are great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we're, we're imperfect people still. So I remember when I had the opportunity to join and I was like, yeah, that's great. I don't know if I, if I was brought on, um, I have to do that. It was probably a little bit of my experience and my talent. You know, I worked in kind of the communications web marketing team, although you really didn't have a title, you did everything. Um, it was always like anything, everything or nothing at all. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was kind of the motto there. And you kind of saw it. You, I mean, you were you were at the uh, one of the campuses, you saw the the very small staff that did everything. And so when I got there, yes, I was conservative. And I have to, I, I'm still reckoning a lot of, you know, where did I have that? Because I still, there was, there was a good, I would say it was like 60, 40, maybe even 70, 30 some days, um, depending on, on, you know, what I was listening to or who, what, you know, what was <laughs> happening in my life. Because believe it or not, I ha- I always had a problem with the term local missions. That's a total oxymoron, right? Because if you truly are a church and you truly are grounded in Christ, you wouldn't have to have local missions. Like your whole mission should be about the community you're in, right? And I think that's also being kind of unveiled is that to do a backpack drive or to do a shoebox or to adopt an orphan, you know, from a... a underdeveloped country or what we like to say third world country which that is not please if anyone ever says that don't say that anymore um it's not the you know the right term but you know you adopt an orphan and you um maybe take a mission trip overseas right um to go build something that's what missions was whereas on 
when I went to college, I learned more about service and giving back and about those four years, not only was I helped ground my faith, you know, and, and the seeds, but it also grounded in me and what we were told through every single opportunity is that we are preparing you to lead. We're preparing you to serve, right? And the difference between just volunteering and serving, like you're going to be a servant leader. And so, and, it, and that's carried through a little bit through uh, Western Christianity, but not as much. And so when I joined the church, you know, when I came on staff, I was, like I said, I had a little bit of that service and volunteering. I had even founded a nonprofit, you know, back in 2000, early 2003. So I still had that connection to my community. But I also, I also, again, bought into what American evangelicalism said, that if you do all these right things, we will accept you, i.e. the church will accept you, i.e. Uh, you know, you have more white supremacy will accept you. The dominant culture will accept you. And so I was operating in that. I was operating that I was, again, a good one, right? Um, because we're, we're told that consciously or unconsciously, like when you're the only one in the room who's a person of color, you're like, they look at you like, see, you're here, right? So it's a good thing you're here. And, and you know, don't do anything wrong or say anything. You could lose your seat you know, as that token. So I worked in the church. I will say working in ministry is the hardest thing you can ever do. Literally, it, they do follow the rule book of, hey, if God worked six days and was off one, you work six days and you're off one. Uh, you are never not on call. You're never not allowed to answer your phone. Anything can happen in five minutes at the whim of a, a pastor to say, oh, I don't want to talk about this. I want to talk about that. But I, I was already wrestling. I was, yes, I was already wrestling because I was beginning to see that it was a machine. And that is, unfortunately, in my opinion, what American evangelicalism has become. It's become a machine. It is not grounded, I tr truly, and I think all of the teachings of Jesus Christ, it is not grounded in the commandments that Jesus left of caring for others for justice, for true peace. It is about individualism. It is about ego. And that just became a lot more apparent. And yes, because you're doing so much when you're working on staff and you, for me, I gave so much that then I lost a part of myself. Now I will always be thankful for the opportunities that it gave me. I now can check off that I worked in ministry. Great. You know, I got to lead <laughs> amazing women, uh, you know, because eventually I moved to another campus and, and kind of led the women's ministry there. Um, I was able to make some great friendships with some amazing women and and hear stories. And, and But there's still so much more I wanted to do, right? I knew that it wasn't just about, again, ex you know, accepting Christ and having that relationship, but there was so much more that needed to happen in someone's life. And, and but that's where we stopped because we just checked the box and they're Christian and they attend and they tithe. Right. Those were the, that was the extent. And maybe right. you can connect them to a group, but really it wasn't for me. There was really no connection. Like, how are we going to truly change their lives? What are we going to to truly do in their lives that is tangible? And we didn't have there was nothing of that there. And unfortunately, that's a lot of what our American church is about, is about saying you're Christian and 
kind of this good veneer, but then when you ask for real help or you need real service, it's like, oh, well, you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You can do it because I did it. Whereas we know that that is, that's not, for me, that is not the teaching of Christ, right? So you're mm-hmm. supposed you're supposed to walk um, with your brother down the road, carry their burden if you have to, carry their cross. But that is not, unfortunately, what our American church kind of tells you. So for me, I had a pivotal moment and I'm, so I'm going to ask you what your pivotal moment is and I'll share mine. For the 2016 election, the pastor of the church that we went to had literally the weekend before, the Sunday before election day had a service, who should you vote for? And in that, and I had already been, there had been certain people that had been at the church that I didn't agree with. I was one of the worship leaders at the, you know, the downtown campus. And I was already starting to feel myself kind of get pulled away because of the people that were being invited to speak at the church and how divisive they were and are. And so when he had that, and I was leading, I think I was on stage that weekend, or maybe I wasn't, I can't even remember. But I do remember that service. And he literally said, don't vote for the person, vote for the party. Basically telling the entire congregation to vote for Trump. At that moment, I'd already, I think I think I was already leaning towards moving. Or I wasn't sure at that point. Within a couple of weeks, I had decided I was moving back to California. So I didn't. But I was ready to leave. I was ready to find another church. And the only reason I stayed was because I was like, well, I'm leaving in a couple of months. And I was part of the worship team. That was really the only, that was like the highlight, the people and the highlight of my church experience. Because there became, there, you know, when you start seeing scandals with your pastor, you, and you believe in that and believe in the person and believe in the mission, quote unquote mission of the church. Um, you find you find yourself making excuses like, oh, well, it's this. Oh, well, it's that. They say it's this. So you believe it. And then for me, that was like a very pivotal moment that since then I've attended church occasionally, but I'm not a, like after I left, after I stepped foot at my last time singing everything before I moved back to California, that was the last time I had gone to church regularly. And that's three, almost four years ago. That was my moment because then I started going, you know what? Anytime there's two people together is church. Like it ne- church is not a building. It's people. Church is not. And I st- like all these things that I continually gave myself guilt trips over, whether it was sex or whether it was using language or whatever. I was like, you know what? I'm a good person. I give back to my community. I like I am somebody who fights for social justice. I am somebody who like sees something being done wrong. I'm the one, you know, if I help people and don't brag about it, why am I so concerned about what these people from a building are telling me, you know? And that was my break from religion, quote unquote religion, right? Um, Mm -hmm. What would, did you have a moment like that? Was it, or was yours just kind of, a buildup before you're like, okay, because I know you also left traditional church because we discussed it. And then Mm -hmm. I started around that same time, I started noticing things that you have posted, right. In regards to not when like not supporting Trump. And and I was like, wait, I was shocked. 
I'm not going to lie, Francesca, I was shocked. I was happily shocked. (laughs) But I was shocked because I knew how like conservative you were and starting like seeing you start to voice and it's only become louder and louder and louder over these last four years. First of all, I just want to say I am so proud of you. I think that's so awesome because you you do have a gift for communication. You do have a gift. You work, you know, with your normal day job. You work with communities of color and you work with people, you know, mm-hmm. with health and all of these different things. So if you didn't have a pivotal moment, like what? During that time, four years ago, what was it that you were just like, traditional religion is maybe not for me, I'm more faith-based person, and Trump is not my guy, like what, because like I said, I was shocked when I saw, happily shocked, but I really was. So, I always say it's it's actually funny, one of my good friends who I worked with uh, at the church, um, we always kind of jokingly said, you know, she was our tree hugging liberal who worked with us. Uh, she was from Arkansas. So I know you're talking country. About. Yeah. So and we're such good friends. And, you know, we would tease her. So I remember that. And, and so I had to go back and like, OK, where did my political journey even start? Right. Of like, because it is tied into faith. And unfortunately, also here in stateside is that our Christian church, unfortunately, has now given itself over to the Republican Party, right? Like, if you're not Christian and Republican, then who are you? You're, again, a liberal, you know, tree-hugging person, you know, from the coast. You're all of these different names and terms that are used to, to, to just cast another group aside. So, I remember the 2000 election. Um, uh, it was I was still at college, and I remember I didn't vote for for the president. And and I had to think back. I was like, because it was Gore and Bush. Remember 2000. Um, and again, we went through our, the big counting of the votes and everything. Yeah. But it was there I started because I started to get very involved with. This is funny. So my freshman roommate was from San Antonio, and you know there's different groups and clubs on campus. And she was from San Antonio, very much total opposite, right? She, I had my little uh, polo skirt on in my kids and she was in her hoop earrings. And like, again, I, I was, and now I love hoop earrings. Now I love hoop them. earrings um, and red lipstick, girl. <laughs> I know, like she, I, it was totally different than what I, I was like, oh, okay. Um, she took me to a Mecha meeting. And if you know Mecha, they are yeah. like a Chicano, like, and that's another thing is like here in Texas, we don't use the word Chicano, right? We use the word Tejano. We use the word uh, Hispanic, right? And I grew Chicano. up in San Diego where we did use Chicano, Chicana. Yes. And now even knowing the history of why Chicano is used as opposed to Hispanic or Latin or now even Latinx, which that's a whole other topic. Um, so I remember she took me to a Mecha meeting. And I was like, oh, my God, here I am. This a very, you know, too white Hispanic girl at this Mecha meeting. But I do remember it was also around the time that it was my freshman year because Lino Gralia, he was a law professor at UT. He made this comment about Hispanics and Blacks not being smart enough. And so, of course, you're in Austin, big uprising. You know, I, I know I, I went to this march um, where we were marching from, you know, saying it 
for my college campus, which is in, in South Austin to, you know, the UT campus. Um, and Jesse Jackson spoke. And I remember like, that was my first moment of like movement and like, oh, wow, this is what justice looks like. I, had, I didn't know what the words were. I couldn't articulate it. But I remember being a part of that and saying, yes, and like, I'm Hispanic. I'm smart enough, right? Um, but yeah, that was, and I remember that. And like I said, I know God put people in my life through those four years that helped me see a different part of myself and my culture. So fast forward to working at the church or, you know, the 2000 election, I didn't, uh, I wouldn't call myself Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal. I was just kind of like in this, you know, whatever, you know, um, but it was a 2004 presidential election. And I remember watching both conventions. I remember watching Barack Obama speak. I remember telling myself, oh, wow, he's going to be president one day. Like he was just this amazing speaker. And I was so inspired because he was running for uh, state Senate then. And I remember hearing, so that was at the DNC, right? And the RNC, Arnold Schwarzenegger spoke. Don't ask me why. I was like, hmm. And Bush was running, of course. Um, and I was like, well, he's a Texan. As so I was like, he's Texan. <laughs> and he's Texan, right? So that was another source of pride. Like, you got to vote for Bush because he's Texan. Um, and he was, you know, owner of the Texas Rangers. So I remember, yes. So I will say that for four, eight, 12, and even 16, I voted Republican. I was a Republican. My family knew it. And although we never talked about it, although I didn't wear a, a shirt, you know, Wait, so you or vote for Trump in 16. Yes. In fact, this is my public apology for that. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and that's, that's interesting. I think that's also, you didn't, maybe it was right after that you're like, it was right after it was like within six months, it was like, you know, all the craziness. So, so yeah, I wasn't a straight ticket voter. Right. But um, I leaned more conservative. Right. And again, it goes to that, you know, you pulled yourself on uh, your bootstraps, your mom, you know, changed the course, you're special, you made it, um, that kind of, and also I hate this, but you know, but we also we've heard it, you know, you're one of the good ones, right, of why can't others like you or your community be like you or think like you. And so, so I let me ask into, you a question. So yes. is that why it didn't bother you? Like, I remember when he came down that escalator and starts talking about Mexicans send their rapists, their this, their, and I was ready to break my TV to box this man in the TV. I was pissed. I was pissed off. Obviously, prior to, he was talking about grabbing women by the pussy. And my parents normally lean conservative. And my dad was like, nope. Like, literally, that was the moment. And my dad's from Texas. And my dad normally is more conservative. And at that moment, my dad was like, nope. The way he talks about women, I am, you know, I love my wife and I have three girls and I never want anybody to disrespect if he, if any, my dad was literally like, if any of my girls were in front of this man, he would disrespect them and I'm not going to put up with that. And that was my dad's moment, right? Mm -hmm. So is it like what you were saying that you're one of the good ones thing, that mentality that that didn't bother you or did it bother you when you just let it, it bother? 
it, it bothered me. And I think like you said, like, you know, when you're in church and, and you're the pastor's going through scandals and you kind of like you, you know, you just there's always a reason, right? There's always an explanation or it was taken out of context or no, he doesn't really feel that way. Right. Or and and again, you think you if you're in that room, well, then he wouldn't. I, I can't fully reason why, but it did bother me. But then it was like, but then I also know that I was in a place where by then I had been in my current role now for what is it a good couple of years I was already starting to see a lot about you know our systems are broken that it it's not about also about personal choice so there's again this conflict and it, literally I could wake up and like what am I today? I'm like, no, we can, you know, personal choice and behavior modification and like make the good choice. But then also, you know, our systems, our society is not set up for any person of color to succeed. So I rationalized it. And I think that's a lot of people who did because you saw the the choice. And I, I remember, yes, I was proud. Hillary Clinton, first, you know, woman running for president, actually, you know, second behind Shirley Chisholm. And, and, but like, I was proud of that. But I also was like, I bought into that. I'm going to change things. You know, I'm going to drain the swamp, all of those, those messages and people wanting a change. I think, and people look back now from four years and people were just so tired because we knew things were broken and we're like, okay, here's this other person who's going to continue to do that. And remembering the Clinton scandal and the things that were said about Clinton. And then, you know, what's the lesser of two evils? Well, we don't know what we're going to get with him. So let's just try it out. Unfortunately, um, <laughs> you don't realize how quickly things can spiral out of control because it was shortly thereafter. I remember I, I travel a lot for work and I always use my passport. And by then, you know, now we're having children separated at the border. I'm like, what is this? And people, and also hearing pastors say that there's nothing wrong with that or not even speaking up. And it's like, wait, why are you not speaking up? There are people actually, you know, there are families being separated. And for me, and of course, it always has to be like that own personal thing sometimes to just truly wake you up. I was traveling and I came back home and I always feel like, you know, you unpack and everything. And I remember, I remember leaving my passport in my purse because the thought in my head was, hey, my passport is here. I can prove that I'm an American citizen. Like the fact that here I am, seventh generation Hispanic, but because my last name is Martinez, no telling what could happen to me because of how the state of our world now and the fact that anyone with a Spanish surname, anyone without an English last name could be deported. And it was re-emphasized when my stepfather, who again, born and raised in North Texas, said, I have to start carrying my wallet with me when I walk the dog, because you never know what's going to happen, right? I got to have my ID on me to prove that I'm a citizen or to prove that I belong here because even during that and and what he ushered into what he ushered by him occupying the white house was that it was 
the the kind of subconscious racism that had always been under and that we always lived with, right? We all lived with it. We all knew we when we sat in a room or people asking, oh, where are you from? Or where are your parents from? Or can you speak Spanish? You know, all of those microaggressions that you got were like a lot more overt. And that coupled with, I've got to keep my passport in my wallet to prove that I'm American citizen. And then also encountering more overt racism um, at work that was like, something's got to change here. And that's when I think the pendulum totally swung. And I was listening to a podcast and a study that said, you know, when conservative individuals actually leave conservatism, they actually go far radical progressive, <laughs> like they go all the way to the end. And I'm like, I think that's me because I'm like a break it all down. None of it's working. Um, but that's where I am. So I would say it was a, a build, but like, like I said, I wasn't totally sold. I knew, but it's also when you talk about one of the things that just keeps popping in my, my mind is, you know, the whiteness that infects us. And please do not, I'm not saying that white people I'm not saying that, you know, uh, those from European, but whiteness as a concept, right, of this homogeneous state infects even people of color. Like, I will totally raise my hand. I will say that whiteness infected me. I have now my job is to, I no longer want to pursue that white gaze and that white approval. Like that veil is gone. But I've also, after for 40 something years, again, that whiteness is a part of me, whether it's the way I, the vanity, how I express myself, the way I look, you know, even some of the things that subconsciously you say or do, why do you do them? Why would I, why do I do this? You know, why do I work out and think that I have to be, uber uber thin right is that because i'm still conforming to european beauty standards right so those types of things or that is again it was more of a snowball it was more of a but those were two of the defining moments of like i better keep my passport in my wallet because you never know they might do a roundup um they might send everyone back with a hispanic last name or spanish last name and there's been and, instances of that happening yes like yes. people, U.S. citizens being held and not even giving the chance to to prove that they're citizens, just being deported. Like, yes. so it's not like it comes from nowhere. There has been things that have actually happened. Here. Yes. I'm actually reading a book called, um, it's on the rep repatriation of uh, Mexican-Americans in the 30s. And I have to remember, that's the 30s. That is when when a million, a million American-born Mexican-Americans were sent back to Mexico. Like they there were has put been this like pull, pull, push and pull when the U.S. needs physical capital, right, of, of Mexicans. They've welcome, we're welcoming, like this has been over the last, you know, since since Cal since the Southwest has become part of the United States, there has been this push and pull between the United States and Mexico where you're welcome, you're welcome. We need your physical capital. We need help. We need this. And then as soon as it, they don't need it, okay, you need to go back home. And mm -hmm. every time it's like making it harder and harder for what used to be like the free flow of people being able to come in and out, which actually drove down you know, what would undocumented immigrants, right? 
it, mm-hmm. it drove that down. Now, if you come here, you can't go back because once you go back, you can't come back. So it's this system that we think we're, oh, so improving or whatever. Yeah. We're actually causing the problem. Like we are the cause of what we would, of what people would call the problem. Our, our system is the cause of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, our country was, we have to, we have to reckon with it. Our country was built on racism, white supremacy. And I heard a new term called capital supremacy, right? So um, again, kind of leaning towards more conservative and, and, you know, it was all about capitalism and the free market. But unfortunately, there is no free market because that market was built on the blood of indigenous, our indigenous communities, our black brothers and sisters. And even in, in those in Mexican, you know, and Asian blood, communities and Asian ones, communities. Yeah. So like that kind of that free market has been built on the backs of every type of uh, every community of color. And that is also like and I heard it today. And if you know, some people are like, oh, well, well, first of all, I can't go back to my country because this is my country. Um, but like you know, we'll, we'll move to Canada or da, 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 da. No, I still love this country. Like I still love it, but I want more for it. I want that hope and that what I believe, you know, this, this large, this large opportunity, right? Because this is, this is a great country, right? The fact that we are this huge experiment, I believe in it. I still have hope in it. But I know that we, but we're still young. Like we're, we, you know, if we get to 300 years old as a country, you know, let's fix it now, right? Then 1500 years down the road. But yeah, that is what our country was built on. And so we have to reckon with that as a country. We have to. Instead of sleeping uh, it under the rug, which we instead of to talk about and, oh, it's over. It's done with. No, if it was over and done with, we wouldn't still be dealing with these systemic failures now. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't be dealing with that. Yeah, you would. And this this right now, you know, is. I, I know there are people who are like, oh, 2020 and like this whole year. But if you have, I think, had any I don't want to say any sense, but like if you I think if you've been in tune to like what's happening, right, and truly like were a servant leader or worked in the community, you knew that this we couldn't do this for the rest of our lives. Like we couldn't we couldn't sustain that system. We put band-aids and and duct tape pieces of our country, you know, to but we never truly dismantled the system, which was built on white supremacy, which was built on colonization, um, racism and misogyny because they're two hand in hand, you know, all of them are together. You you have to break it completely down and rebuild it. I was just reading a study about women, you know, and this pandemic, COVID-19, just this eight months has washed away 30 years of progress for women in, as a whole, right? Because of the economic loss and the job loss and everything. But if it tr- if we truly fixed it, again, we wouldn't have washed it away. Like the fact that we lost 30 years of progress meant that the system was still broken. We just put a bandaid on it. Within just a few months. Within just a few months. That means that it was, it never really was built, right? To, for everyone. Yeah. So I would say, yeah, I'm, I'm a lot more like, let's break the whole system down and start again. Because you have to know that again, 
we were built on this, we were built on lies. And I want to think that there's some glimmer of truth in, in what this country was founded in. But I also know that right now the majority is is not for everyone, right? Justice, liberty and justice for all. Nope. That only meant if you're a, a cis white male, that's really it. <laughs> you know, landowner really is what it was it started out with. You were exactly male landowner. Mm-hmm. A landowner. So so again, I think right now, you know, for me it is and and the journey is is using my voice, right? Because the work that I do um, as kind of my full-time job is in equity um, and is in calling attention to those inequities and those systems. And again, not just going all the way downstream, right? And asking uh, and taking the dead fish out of the water, but then asking why are the fish dead, right? And going all the way upstream. So, and now we are at a, a point where we're deep down in the structures of, our, our culture, our country, who we are as humans. Uh, I think even, I'm sorry, who we are as Americans. And that's makes a lot of people uncomfortable. But then also I know you're going to be uncomfortable, but you're uncomfortable. You're being uncomfortable is nothing compared to people losing their lives. You know, people being murdered and killed every day and it being justified. That's the other thing is like, and I think that's also what's so saddening right now is that even those who would call themselves Christians justifying men being murdered, women being murdered in their homes, sleeping in their beds, right? That or that's eating so ice sad. cream in their living room or eating ice cream in their living room or right or a kid playing in a park, right? That justified. I would say that during this this probably this year, I have gotten more hateful comments on social media from white Christian men. I always say, and I, re- I, re- I reply back, I said, your misogyny and racism is showing. Like, if you want to turn it, turn it off because it's showing. But we have to call that out. And, and I think even for me is like stepping up and saying, hey, I'm going to say this. And if you don't like it, okay, then bye. Right. But if you do or you want to ask me questions or we want to have a dialogue, let's have that dialogue. But this is where I'm going to stand now. And it's hard for a lot of people. It, it, it really is. And I was so, you know, when the Breonna Taylor verdict came out, I. It was during work day and I remember sitting at my desk and I was just so like. I put my phone down and, and there I hasn't just, been a verdict yet. It was just well, the grand jury, the grand jury. And yes, now the more gr- information is now coming out. So we'll see if, if anything yes. changes. Yes. But the, the announcement of the, of the grand jury. And I remember, and immediately I checked on all of my colleagues who, um, who are black. And I said, how are you doing? Are you okay? And even the next and the next day, you know, and, and the rest of the week, I didn't get to, to to talk with them. And 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 I was so proud of our CEO saying, I know this is a hard time for everyone. Like you're grieving and we don't truly understand, you know, what our colleagues of color are going through right now. But I remember one of my colleagues saying, you know, I woke up this morning and I didn't want to be a black woman. And that broke my heart. Like to know that that's the pain of like. I just don't want to be a black woman today, right? And that broke my heart, but it also 
again, reminded me of, first of all, that I need to be an ally for all Black women. Like, I'm an ally for all women, but Black women especially, because they are, uh, we talk about the most disrespected, the most, you know, taken advantage of group of of people on this planet. Um, we, I have to be for women, but I have to be for Black women too. Absolutely. And Black trans women, right? Because even just saying you know, all women and and I have to be that ally. But then I also have to keep myself in check because I know that I have a privilege, right? Because part of that assimilation, part of the growing up where I did, part of the not speaking Spanish is that, and I've had this conversation with my mom, I can walk into an establishment, I can walk into anywhere, and I will be treated as a white woman. Like, I know I will be like, and it's unfortunately, it's happened. I've seen it, because I've been with other people of color or seen that happen. You know, what's so crazy Mm -hmm. is, like, there's been times where I've blatantly been blatantly in Dallas, in a high end store, standing there waiting by I'm waiting to buy like I was ready give me some Manolo Blahniks I had I was like yes I already knew which ones I wanted I was waiting there nobody ever helped me three white women walked in no problem in and out nobody ever Mm -hmm. ever out and I I mean I'm a light-skinned Latina I'm I guess I'm considered white passing I'm considered white passing Latina but I don't know apparently there's something about me that people are like she not white Because because that's not that's not the first time it's happened to me, and it wasn't the you know it's not the last time that's happened to me. But Mm -hmm. that was just I just remember being I forget the mall that's in Plano when it was brand new, and Willow Bend Willow Bend Mall Willow Bend. I was at Willow Bend Mall, ready drop ready to drop some money because I was happy that I was like. This is what I want. I have the money to get it. I'm not even going to be, I wasn't stressed out about it. Nothing. The first time I could buy something so frivolous, that was like, I don't know, at $800, $900 on a freaking pair of shoes. Then I never ended up getting it, which I'm glad I probably am glad anyways. But just the fact that I was like, literally looking around going, excuse me, is anybody going to help me? And nobody would help Mm -hmm. me. Yeah. And my, my mom and my stepdad or my mom and my dad have stories of that because my mom, uh, very light skinned, like she's more freckles than, you know, uh, than an Irish, you know, woman. Uh, she like, and again, she's blonde hair too. And again, doesn't Spanish, she grew up speaking a little bit Spanish, but whereas, you know, they'll go into a store or like my, my, my stepfather will go in first and like everyone ignores him. And he's just a basic, you know, he, he, and now he is a t-shirt and shorts kind of guy with tennis shoes, you know, so we always shocked it up to, you know, he doesn't look like he has any money. Right. But, but then we started to be like, mm, actually, no, it's because, you know, and here's my mom walking in and it's like, hello, how can we help you? And like, and, and when they walk in together, people are like, wait, who's, who's, and I mean, the fact that she gets asked, oh, well, you know, you must have married someone with a Hispanic last name, you know, with her last name. People yeah. say, say that to yeah. me. People have said that to me. People have said that to me of like, they see my last name Martinez and they're like, oh, your husband's Hispanic. And I'm like, no, I'm Hispanic. Like I'm not married. It's just me. 
So that's that, right? So if I can walk into a place and I can pass as white, now that's not 100% of the time, you know, um, but I also know that there I are have times that where I know you're darker than me. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, uh, but then when people see my name, right, that's, that's the other thing, because my last name is Martinez, that the, then it's the reverse of, oh, where are you from? Were you born here? Were your parents born here? You know, oh, do you speak Spanish? Or, oh, where did you grow? You know, like those, questions that are racist and so that's the other thing it's like if you don't see my name then you know you don't know you know my my culture or my heritage or maybe I don't think you do so yeah so that is that is that's where we are now and again using my voice as an ally using my voice as for all communities for my own community as well you know I think and we talk about this, you know, we also, as I think it's a, a community, it's a culture, being Hispanic, being Latinx, being Latin, Chicano, Tejano, whatever, you know, what, what you want to call uh, yourself, we have to reckon with our own, whether it's the whiteness that we've adopted, the colorism, right, the anti-blackness that we have, because we have it, right? Absolutely. I mean, I know colleagues who are Afro-Latino, and they never felt welcome, right? They always, they always felt more, you know, the, the, uh, the black community accepted them more than the Latino community, right? I have literally been to events that have Hispanic that were put on by large Hispanic groups. And you have someone on the panel who represents, you know, uh, a Latina, she's a Latina in corporate. And someone will ask a question about, you know, you know, inclusivity of Afro Latinos. And literally, it's like, I didn't even hear that word. I don't even know what that word is. I don't even know they don't exist. Right. And like, so we're still we have to reckon with our own anti blackness. And again, I think that comes from our, uh, that whiteness, right? That assimilation yeah. that has been told that you, you have to be more white, right? To be accepted because, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, um, or, or I, I told you, I was reading a book. It's called, it's about the repatriation in the thirties of individuals who were born here, who are Mexican and, and they were, you know, deported or repatriated back to Mexico. And What's is around that book. It's called A Decade of Betrayal. And it's from Francisco Balderrama and Raymond Rodriguez. So I was still reading it. So oh. that's um, and there's actually a documentary. I was looking it up on the internet um earlier. So and and again, that's not just a couple hundred thousand, that's a million that they could count. A million people who were born here, who were then taken back, taken from their families, forced. And, and unfortunately, the way that they identified them, and of course, this was during the Great Depression, was through schools, was through um, hospitals. And so that's also why we have this trauma, right? Many in our community have this trauma of not trusting the government and we're not trusting people, you know, who work for some type of service or, or group because that was how they picked us out in the 30s. And so in the 30s, and, and, I, and I have to also go back to, you know, when my great grandmother, because this was around when my great grandmother, and unfortunately, I never got to ask her, you know, if there was anyone in her family who re, who, repat who was repatriated. But I have to know that it was around that time that she, you had to make that decision, right? Because either they were going to call you out, 
and they were going to send you away. They were going to deport you or put you in jail or harass you or not give you a job, right? So you had to many change your name, give up your language and fully assimilate. Like there are, a Pew did a research uh, years ago, and I know this has got to be higher, that there are actually 40% more Hispanics in this country than actually self-identify. And that after third generation, most Hispanics stop self-identifying, right? Because they're fully assimilated. I want to, we could go on forever, but I want to ask one question before I ask my final couple questions. Right now, Governor Greg Abbott is, has put in a thing in regards to like one drop-off location in each county. You have places like Dallas County, which has millions and millions of people, and you have one drop-off location. Is there pushback happening in the state among people? Are you hearing that? What are you What are you hearing just from in regards to that? Yes. So immediately when that happened, it was especially Harris County, which is Houston, mm-hmm. and Travis County that immediately which tried to, which is Austin who immediately tried to put a stay to that and, and like fight that. So currently I know that that is being fought. Um, and there are some lawsuits against that. Um, early voting will still start. Right. And for Dallas, I have to, I have to think it was like, well, we, we still own Dallas County still had only one drop off location. Um, so I was like, Oh, well, I don't know if that's good or bad because we were going to have one drop off location for Dallas County and it's pretty big. Um, And same thing for Fort Worth and Tarrant County. Um, but it was really, yes. So there is pushback. There are people who are, you know, again, that's voter suppression, tried and true, right? Because it's not just about the presidency of Texas flipping, right? Texas being purple. Um, it's not a lock for the Republican, but it's also doing, you know, with our, our senator right now, John Cornyn is up against MJ Hager. She, they're in a neck and neck, uh, battle and and actually today was you know this evening was a debate and and then there are the races across like the different um uh, state reps and and other um rep- representatives so i think that's also that is that they could lose control you know the republicans could lose control of the state as well because it has been a republican uh state senate or um state legislator for gosh i want to say almost a couple of decades now so that's the other cry is that it's not just about the president and delivering Texas to Trump, but it also is all those state races and the Senate race and, and everything. So that's, and of course, if you look at the electoral map of Texas, the bluest parts are Dallas, Houston, Austin, San Antonio, the Rio Grande Valley. Yeah. Right? It's, all the, it's, all, it's all the the metro Major metro. Yeah major metro areas. Yeah, we've got, I think we have like 216 counties here and more than, you know, 90% of them are pretty red and conservative. Yeah. And and even Collin County, which, you know, is Frisco and all of that, you know, there are Frisco, Plano, uh, Plano, you know, there, there are talks of like that becoming more blue because you have a lot of out of state, right? From New York, California, Chicago coming and going up to Collin County there. I know they're, they're like frightened, right? Of like, oh my gosh, you know. Well, uh, let me, let's be real. When you keep courting all of these major companies, what the hell do you think is going to happen? Like, yeah. 
you you keep they got State Farm, they have pet like you keep courting all of these major companies to come, and many of them bring their employees with them. What do you think is gonna happen? <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's- so I asked you to describe your life in one word, and you said strength. Why strength? I know that I am not the woman that I am and the place that I am without standing and and having the women before me lift me up. Um, I will say, of course, my mom uh, grew up single mother, only child. And this was years ago when uh, I was bullied more for not having a dad than for being Hispanic or for my culture. Uh, so the, the strength that she gave me, my grandmother, um, I she was, she also kind of embodied strength in that she was a Hispanic woman. She left her abusive husband with six children, which you didn't do in the fifties and sixties, right. Uh, as a single mother. And then also my great grandmother who kept the family together. So strength is, and when you have strength, sometimes you don't see it, right. It's it for me, you know, I can work out as much as I want to physically. Um, and I still don't ever have the muscle. I don't have the definition, (laughs) but I know that I'm strong. Right. Um, I know that, I can shoulder a lot more burden than maybe I need to or should during tough times like this or when you don't know or during heartbreak or sorrow, you know, knowing that you're going to get through it, you're going to push through it. That is why I would think that strength would be that word. Have you found yourself with a new or favorite or undiscovered hobby since COVID started? Gardening. (laughs) Um, now I am not like, Hey, I'm going to grow my own vegetables yet. Like I've started with potted flowers and plants. I always wanted to have the green thumb and then I just never had time. So I used to, I travel a lot for work. And so this is the longest period I've been home, which has given me opportunity to tend to my flowers and rose bushes, got some rose bushes and some begonias. And I'm also doing, oh my gosh, I just forgot, but um, my succulents, they're alive still because I, I, I've killed a succulent before in the past. Um, so they're alive. So I would say like gardening and like, um, so that, that would be it. Um, I did not learn how to crochet. No, nothing of that. Um, <laughs> cooking, no breads here. Yeah. yeah I didn't no, do breads either. No breads. And the final question that we bookend everything, your favorite type of wine, red, white, or rosé. And do you have a favorite particular kind? I do not. I trust. So if there is someone who is with me who loves wine, I will trust and I will say, you pick the wine, take me on an adventure. So I am whoever I am with. So if we were having dinner, I'd say, Jessica, you pick the wine. I want to see what you love and kind of experience that, Um, you know, something that you so I, I trust the person that I'm with, uh, but I don't, but I would, if you asked me to go pick a bottle of wine, I'd probably would do white. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a little basic. It's a basic. <laughs> they don't have to be. They're not. I'm they're don't. They don't have to be. Like if you're just getting a Kendall Jackson or something, yeah, that's kind of basic, but stick with me, Francesca. I will show you the wine ways. The show wine the way. <laughs> show me the way. Show me. I do know that when I drink a Merlot, I literally fall asleep. Like I'm like, okay, bye. 
and I would just fall asleep. Um, but yeah, and I, I wanted, you know, this whole new tequila thing that people are doing, like the sipping tequilas. I'm like, um, maybe I should try that. Yeah, I think I think that's where I'm going to go. I think I'm going to do like the tequila thing. Yeah. I, I, yeah. One day. So when we get back out and, you know, when I come visit in California or we take a trip somewhere else, you yes. know, when we're all out and about from quarantine, um, we'll do that. Uh, I know you just went to Napa, right? I did. Yes. I did. It was so much fun. I'll tell you all about that. But until next time, mi gente, I can't give away all the secrets. I got to tell Francesca on the DL. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Cheese My Podcast. For more information on Francesca and the book she recommended, A Decade of Betrayal, please see the show notes for links to her social media and where to purchase the book. You can check out all things Wine and Cheese Met on our website, thewineandcheesemetpodcast.com. There you will find the names of the wine I drink each week, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on Instagram at The Wine and Chisme and Facebook and LinkedIn at The Wine and Chisme Podcast. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Chisme, please subscribe, rate, and review. Those five-star ratings are always appreciated and positive reviews are appreciated even more. Until next time, mi gente, saludos.